as we see the gospel advancing in the 28 chapters of the book of Acts, it does so through this one-two punch, gospel doctrine, gospel community. Now, last week we focused on the jab, the left jab, the first punch, and we said we cannot have Jesus' community without having doctrine, birthing, shaping, defining, animating, propelling that community. You remove doctrine and all you've got is a wicked killer party on the deck of the Titanic. It may be fun very briefly, some good tunes, some nice conversation, maybe some hors d'oeuvres, coconut shrimp dipped in the peanut sauce, but everyone on the boat is going to die. That's not what we're going for in gospel community. We need our community to be anchored to eternity. And that means the life-changing and sin-forgiving and holiness-forging, soul-saving, heaven-granting gospel of Jesus Christ. We need gospel doctrine first at the center of our community. Okay, this week we are dealing with the opposite error. And that is the crazy tendency, especially for Western Christians, American Christians to go, I'm going to be all about the doctrine, but not about the community. To have a pristine theological confessional statement, but have no love for the saints. Dr. Luke is going to blow that ridiculousness out of the water by showing us in just five verses of vivid prose that gospel doctrine accomplishes something. It forms this holy, loving, unified, familial, magnetic gospel community. Okay, that's our big idea for today. Let me read our verses again, and whenever possible, we love to just chop them up and walk through them. So hear the text of Scripture. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the hands of the apostles. All who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as anyone had need. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that for the glory of your Son, by the power of your Spirit, as this family comes to another meal from the bread of life, the words of God, that we would be nourished, inspired, corrected, taught, and moved to be holy people together. Uh, This is such a gift that we get to give ourselves to your word, and I pray that we would receive it with humble and anxious hearts this morning. So hear my prayer, would you, that we've been praying all week, and bless the preaching of your word. Amen. Amen. All right, let's set the context for what we're going to do. Peter, along with the 11 other apostles, have just stood before 
thousands and thousands of Jews who are in Jerusalem for a big giant feast day, and they preached gospel. Peter told them, you got to hear this. God steadfast loves you so much that he sent his son for you to win you, to save you. And through Jesus of Nazareth's atoning death and vindicating resurrection, God the Father has secured the forgiveness of your sins in Christ. He said it like this, Jesus' crucifixion was done by you, and that is bad, inexpressibly bad. But amazingly, mysteriously, Jesus' crucifixion was also done for you, and that is good, inexpressibly good news. And all that is necessary for you to receive the benefits of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is to turn from your sin and to be baptized and to identify with Christ who up to this moment you've been identifying against. You do that and Peter said, God by his spirit will downpour his grace on your souls. That's gospel doctrine. Boom, that day at the end of that sermon, thousands and thousands said, I want that. I repent of my unbelief and my stubbornness and my suppression of the truth and what happened to Jesus and my sin. I turn from all of that. I want this gospel. Let me just grab my bathing suit because whatever baptism means, I'm in. Thankfully, if you study history, you see that there were pools all in and around the temple in this part of Jerusalem. And so somehow that day, 12 apostles got really wet because they baptized 3,000 men and women into the family of God. Do you remember that day when by God's grace you first heard gospel and realized forgiveness of my sin, all of my sin is available to me in Christ. I'm free. That's what was going on this day for thousands Nothing else in this book of Acts is going to make any sense to you if the words forgiven of my sin are not the four most beautiful and and strong and wild and unexpected and powerful words in the English language for you. For these people, it wasn't English, it was Aramaic, but whatever forgiven of my sin was, new hearts, new minds, new affections, new eyes to see the world, and new community. Community. Not one of these 3,000 people were, were born again and baptized and then disappeared off to their houses to live with Jesus in isolation. Gospel doctrine birthed gospel community. Okay, one of the things you need to know as we learn through this is that Luke loves summaries. Loves summaries. As you read this book, you're going to see over and over again, he will give you two or three verses that will sum up a really long period of time or a lot of activity really fast. For example, if I was to sum up for you my four years in undergraduate school, I would say, 
a lot of reading of books and a lot of typing of papers. And I know I don't look that ancient, but this was on a brother word processor because the PC had not been invented yet. There was a lot of pickup basketball down at the wreck. There was a lot of eating of cereal because the food in the cafeteria was just rancid. Anybody been there? And there was a lot of looking at Grace and just begging her to keep liking me and marry me someday. So there's my four-point summary of college. A lot of studying, a lot of hoops, a lot of cereal, and a lot of grace. Quick little summary. Okay, in our text today, what Luke is doing for you is saying, here's a quick little summary of what the first gospel community looked like. Now, he opens it up like this. He says, they devoted themselves to... Okay, pause right there for a second. I need you to feel the urgency of this verb, devoted themselves to. The the Greek word in there means to be something, but not just to be something. It means to be a certain way with force, with fire, with passion, with energy. So this is not just to do something, la-di-da, go through the motions. This is to drink three straight 15-ounce monster drinks and then chug a bag of Fun Dip without the little sticky stick and then go do whatever it was that you were going to do. In other words, we are not about to read about a people who were marginally into this gospel thing. They were all in. Okay, now I know many of you, love many of you, Many of you do not have that kind of a theatrical personality that is like very dramatic and all in on things. I happen to have one of those personalities. So for example, the other day, Grace came home with some Trader Joe's pecan praline granola cereal. Do you know about this stuff? So I had some cereal and I was like, wow, this stuff is good. I didn't know they made this. The next time I was on Route 1 North, I pulled into Trader Joe's, got the biggest carriage that they have, went down this cereal aisle, and I scooped up like 30 boxes of pecan praline, maple pecan, cranberry oat nut. Listen to this. Just the clusters vanilla almond. I came home with seven bags hanging on me up to the kitchen, and she was like, What is wrong with you? (laughs) Then she gave you insight into our marital struggles. She said, when you get into something, you get into it like 8 million percent. And I said, you know it, babe. That's all I have about you. Let's have some cereal. Okay, thank Jesus that not everyone is like that because it would be a messed up world. But what Luke is saying is that with the gospel... It's impossible to not be a little bit like that. There is no such thing as a lukewarm, halfway, 50-50, when it's convenient, if I feel like it, Christian. When gospel grace hits your soul, you are all in. That is the energy and the fire and the passion that this text has Whatever gospel community was, it was that with devotion. 
with devotion. Okay, now you could preach the rest of this text for a thousand Sundays in a thousand different ways. It's been done. Some of this is unique to the cultural moment of this day and this time in redemptive history. Uh, But what I want to do is instead of going really deep on any one idea, have us get exposed to the, the whole big idea of what made up gospel community life with these people. So I'm going to give you four, implication, uh, four elements that he gives and then just one implication. So let me start with the four elements. We know there's four. I've been trying to emphasize this as I read because he gives a list and each item starts with the definitive article, the, 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 four elements. So let's run through these together. All right, the first one is this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Okay, we hit this last week. The very first item on the list of gospel community is what? It's gospel doctrine. In all of its offense, in all of its mystery, in all of its beauty, doctrine is the first thing on the list. It took me 40 minutes to tell you that last week. But... It is not the last thing on the list, nor is it the only thing on the list. Okay, let's talk about this so we avoid this error. So often, too often, American Christians, especially in theologically minded churches like ours, tend to stop right there, element one. What we really want the text to say is, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, And then everyone went home until Peter told them it was time for the next class. And they came with their notebooks ready to learn a little bit more. That can become us. We can even come to church on a Sunday morning to listen to a sermon and get our theological download to the brain and then just go on our way until the next theological download to the brain is coming. In the technological age that we live in, you can actually put the whole church part aside. With podcast and vodcast technology, you can get your Beats and your iPod, and you can get Piper and Chandler and Keller and Horton and Sproul and whoever else makes up your playlist, and your brain can just get big and huge with gospel doctrine, and here's what we end up looking like. It's me... And my big brain stuffed with gospel doctrine for Jesus. If that is all that you have, a head that is swelled with right doctrine, but not a life that is lived in gospel community, something is wrong. We say it like this. If you have perfect theology, but you don't have an intense love for Jesus' people, then you don't have perfect theology. In fact, you don't even have half-decent theology. You are missing everything that theology exists for. And so while our text begins with gospel doctrine for the mind and the heart, a devotion to the apostles' teaching, it does not end up here. Second item on the list is the fellowship. 
Okay, bear with me, because fellowship is a wicked Christianese word. Do you know what I mean by that? It's a word that Christians like to throw around. What are you doing? You're going to get some fellowship in. A lot of images that come to mind when you hear the word or the verb fellowship, most of them are lame, some of them are tame. So by lame, I mean if your mind immediately goes to like a pathetic church potluck with burnt hot dogs and cold baked beans, there's more to it than that. For some reason, going to Dom Savio, this word triggers in my mind about 250 old Catholic women chain smoking and playing bingo in the basement of the rectory. That, that was fellowship. By tame, which is better than lame, but by tame, I mean just thinking that fellowship is just like, it's just a simple togetherness. We just kind of like each other. When we see each other, we'll stop for conversation. We don't mind running into each other, but it's not a big uh, central reality of my life is my membership in the people of God. So there's fellowship, there's togetherness, but it's very simple and scattered. That's not this either. In fact, Luke seems to be focusing on a much more radical meaning of the word fellowship. This word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia, which is built on the root meaning of a word that means common, to, to have things in common, a shared reality, a shared life. The idea of this word is belonging to one another in such a way that what's yours is not just yours, it's mine. And what is mine is absolutely not just mine. It is also yours. Now we make this connection because of the way that Luke speaks in the following verses where he unpacks this. He said these words, everyone who believed, there it is, gospel doctrine, believing, were together, but he doesn't end it there. Some of us would like the period right there. And had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Oof. Okay, we're going to preach more on this reality in four weeks when we see Barnabas literally selling one of his homes and lands and dropping all of that money on the life of the church. Here it is, all of it. Um, but just real quick, this is not communism, which is an unbiblical social order in which all things are forced to be in common, nor is this like Blue State, Massachusetts fiscal policy where we distribute wealth based on high and ubiquitous taxation. That's not what this is. This right here is something very different. This is individuals and their households voluntarily willingly, making the choice to separate themselves from their stuff to meet the needs of others in the community whom they have come to see as family, as family. Okay, this is one of the more stunning teachings of the New Testament of Jesus, that when you are born again, you don't just become a part of, a, of an organization, you become a part of a family. Do you remember Jesus once was sitting, talking with disciples and, and new believers who were following him, and they came over and they said, Jesus, your mom is here, your brothers are here, your sisters, they want to see you. 
And Jesus uses that opportunity to make an intense point. What does he say? He looks around him at these others and he says, Who's my mom? Who's my brothers? Who's my sisters? It's those who want to do the will of my father. Reorganizing the word family, not just to include blood, but to include body of Christ. Wow. So do you know how a family does money? Unless it's a messed up family that has like the equivalent of prenups with their children. How does a basic holy family do money? There's one big checking account, and that money is employed for the individual members of that family as there is need. So if one of the kids has perfectly straight teeth and the other one doesn't, what does a good holy family do? They use some of the family's money to get some braces. They don't send a bill to that child. They don't say, hang on, half here, half here, we got to run the spreadsheets. You just meet the need that is there. What happens if there's a school field trip to D.C. and somebody needs money? You find money for it. What happens when dad and mom are having their anniversary and need some alone time together? That checking account goes to meet that need more intensely. What if there's an illness? You ever pinch pennies on an illness with a family member? What if there's a tragedy? What if there's a difficult season? What if someone stumbles into drug use and there's a cost to get them through rehab? What does a family do? All things in common. Shared life. We're in this for each other. Luke says that that's what was going on in the life of this church. Suddenly there was this recognition that if I belong to Jesus and you belong to Jesus, then we belong, koinonia, in common, shared to each other. And if there is a need there, I am going to meet that need. They were so bonded that nobody felt the right to live in prosperity while the other had an urgent need. (laughs) That is fellowship and togetherness. All right, next one, number three, the breaking of bread. Some writers argue that this can be dumbed down and taken just in the narrow sense of the Lord's Supper coming to Jesus' table. I think it's much broader than that for some textual reasons. Basically, when you read this, you should go, you know what? This Jesus community just liked eating together and liked being together. Here's how Luke teases this one out. He said, and day by day, day after day after day after day, regular rhythm, attending the temple together, That would be big worship or a big space where the apostles could teach everyone at once. And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So can you feel the love that was at the center of this community? Just happy to be together. You don't sense the attitude of all, like, are you kidding me right now? First, I got to give up my stuff. Now I got to eat with these people. No. Day by day, love, affections together. Now, I know, again, in a room like this, in a church like ours at this size, there's a lot of people who don't naturally get hyped up about being with other people. 
more of an introvert. It's an energy drain. I, I get it. But what the gospel will do is it will birth in you an affection for others that you won't mind breaking bread, sharing meals, opening your home, living life with and for others. Jesus has loved them like he has loved you. And if he loves me like he loves me, like he loves them, how can I not love to be with them? So there was doctrine, then there was fellowship and generosity and camaraderie and friendship and meals. And then last element, the prayers. So again, you can study this, and it wasn't just extemporaneous praying. There was prayers that they would work through, bringing in from the Psalms and the Older Covenant with Jesus now at the center. He teases this out with these words. He says, toward the end, praising God and having favor with all the people. Praising God. Okay, so feel this with me. The life of the community, the togetherness and the breaking of bread was bracketed with what? What is it that forms and shapes and defines this community? It's a Godwardness. We call it a gospel centrality. Gospel doctrine on the front end, prayer and praise on the back end. In other words, hear this. When they met with each other, they met with God. There's so many other communities in this world, but there's none like this one right here. So there's running clubs and there's train clubs and there's fantasy football leagues and there's thousands of other ways that we do community. Many of them are good and fine, uh, nothing wrong with them. But what holds those communities together is always self-interest. I want to be about something because I'm interested in it. That is not what works with gospel community. Gospel community hangs together on the grace and the power and the reality of God. May, may we never shoot for becoming a church who does community that does not begin and end with the gospel of the grace of God. So there's your quick and dirty summary of the life of this first community that we can chew on and think about devoted to teaching, devoted to fellowship, devoted to the breaking of bread, devoted to the prayers. There's so many implications of living together like this. Let me just hit one from the text, and that is this. When we add gospel community like that to gospel preaching, gospel proclamation, that makes for what we call a magnetic gospel witness to the world. These two things held together. Here's how Luke ends his summary. He says they were doing all this stuff together, being community, and he says this, and the Lord added to their number day by day by day those who were being saved. I recently read a book by a friend of mine. His name's Jonathan Dodson. It's called The Believable Gospel. The book is about personal evangelism, telling people who don't know about Jesus about Jesus. For like 12 chapters, he is telling all these stories about how he loved and listened very carefully to and then uh, used appropriate gospel language and metaphors with people who he led to Christ. 
Now, John's one of those gifted evangelists. Do you know these people? You may be one of them, you may not. So this is the person who gets on a flight from Boston to Newark, like 40 minutes in the air. When they get off the plane, the whole left side of the jet is born again. You know those people? Like it's just a revival service in the terminal. Or their kid gets on a Little League baseball team, and by the end of the season, he's planting a church because everybody on the team and their households have been converted. Go through a Wendy's drive through and there's like repentance and tears and grace forming before he gets his Baconator. That's who Jonathan is. But then at the end of the book, he stops himself. And he writes this whole 13th chapter that just blew me away in which he says this. I know that I've been writing to you about one-on-one gospel proclamation. But I want to make sure that you understand before you finish this book that Jesus never intended for that to happen detached from church community. Never. And here's what he writes. None of the stories in this book could have been written without the vital partnership of my church. In most cases, each person who heard the gospel from me also heard the gospel and saw its power in my community. This collective witness is more often than not how God discloses his wisdom to this world. The church is God's evangelistic genius, not isolated people with evangelistic drive. And then he runs through each of the stories that he told, each of the names of these people, and he talks about how they came to faith, not simply because he was out there killing it for Jesus, but because they heard it from him and they saw it in his church. That's why we do this. That's exactly what Luke is communicating here. Gospel proclamation was happening, but it was happening in the context of gospel community, and that is what triggered this continuing movement of the grace of God in Jerusalem. That is what we exist for to become. That's what I'm inviting you to today with this text. So think about it. Some of you have been converted to Christ. Have you been converted to his church? Some of you think very hard about the scriptures. Awesome. How hard do you think about people? Some of you uh, love Jesus. Do you have those same affections for Jesus' people. There are so many encouraging signs in the life of the church that we are getting there. I could run through stories of how people in this church, our smaller gospel communities in this church, have separated themselves from hard-earned money, thousands of dollars, to meet needs in the church, meet needs in the church, meet needs in the church. I don't know if I've ever met a group of people who just dig being with each other and breaking bread together from house to house and coffee shop to coffee shop and Kelly's to Taco Bell to Qdoba like these people right here. Why? Because we're believing the gospel and believing the gospel is moving us to love each other. The only place that that happens without self-interest is the church of Jesus Christ. 
we get to be people who say, can this summary please describe who we are as a church? That is biblical fellowship. That is biblical family. That is gospel community. Let's ask the Father to get our hearts there together. Father, I thank you for your word. Uh, We pretend it's so hard to understand and so unclear and oh, but when we actually sit down to read it and hear it, it's beautifully clear. Thank you for that. We confess our sin together. It's easier for us to eat alone and to not deal with each other. And so we avoid breaking bread together. It is way easier for us to say, that's my money, those are my possessions and belongings, and to to not be generous and to meet needs as they arise. I pray that you would forgive us for that. I pray that as we believe the gospel, it would be so tangible that you have loved everybody else in this room the way you loved me, and I cannot help but love them with passion and energy and fire. I pray that you would grow this church and hundreds of other churches in this Boston area that we love as saints give themselves ferociously to gospel doctrine and gospel community. Would you trigger a broad movement of the grace of God in our time through this? Hear my prayer and answer, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's break.